Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash Podcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching Media People Podcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. Content marketing. It's an advertising strategy that involves taking a brand's message and infusing it with a story. And my guest today, Shelley Middlebrook, is a leader in this field. Shelley's the president of Fifth Story, a company that specializes in providing content marketing solutions and strategies for clients. But Shelley's path to her current role wasn't as linear as one would expect. Growing up in what she calls Toronto's Scottish ghettos, Shelley started her professional career selling cars. A recession moved her into media sales as a print rep, working for some of Quebec Gore's B2B publications. Her next role was at Brunico Communications, which started an impressive 11-year stint capped off with her rising to the role of Executive Vice President. She pivoted to broadcast media at the CBC, and after holding senior roles at Rogers Media, The Globe and Mail, and Post Media, she's moved into the agency world. In a nutshell, what is Fifth Story and what does your role as president entail? Fifth Story is a content marketing solutions company. And as president, I'm kind of involved in all things. It's a pretty small company, about 45 people. So all things from sales and marketing to strategy and planning, operations, um, sort of new business development um, and product development. So really all areas. I guess that's what happens when you're president. You have you kind of have your fingers in everything that's going on at the agency. That's true. But let's start from the beginning. Uh, where are you from? Collingwood. Were you born and raised there? I was, but I only lived there till I was five, and then uh, I moved to the city, to Toronto. Interesting. So you moved from cottage country to the big city. You kind of did the reverse of what a lot of other people at least do on the weekends. That's true. Um, I guess my parents lived there, but there, I guess there wasn't a lot of job opportunities and things, so they moved to Toronto, and fortunate for me, they did, I think. Mm, okay, so that's what brought you guys to Toronto then. It was the job market more than anything else. Yes, uh, and what was life like growing up in Toronto? It was good. I first moved to uh, High Park area and lived around there for about a year. And then most of my uh, youth was in Don Mills, so, which was a fun place to grow up. You like to call that the Scottish ghetto, I believe. <laughs> Please tell me how it got that term. Um, the, I lived in a set of apartment buildings that um, are on Don Mills Road. And at the time, most of the tenants were... Scottish, maybe some Irish, English, but a lot of people from um, Scotland in there. And, you know, not huge, um, not the wealthiest uh, neighborhood. Was your family Scottish? Is that why they landed there? No, they weren't. They're uh, Canadian, but we just happened to be put into the Scottish ghetto. <laughs> it's weird that you call it, you've got the word ghetto associated with Don Mills, because if you look at the way property values are going and everything else. Don Mills is quite the area that a lot of people want to be in nowadays. Yeah, no, it was a mix. Um, I think it's still probably a little bit, but um, there's some apartment buildings that were, you know, getting older and a little bit run down. And there was sort of a block of them um, in the midst of it across from the mall um, that were, you know, I guess a little bit not the same as all the houses and in different areas. Obviously, there's close by Post Road and things like that that are quite nice and um, then sort of mid-level. But uh, the Scottish ghetto wasn't the nicest spot. But you lived in a pretty mixed area. I know that you've said that there was a sort of a division between the classes there, but they kind of came together. You said that a lot of your wealthier friends back then would, would go off uh, on trips out of the country. But you guys spent most of your time, you said, at the mall? <laughs> yeah, the mall was sort of the center of the universe uh, when we were younger. And as we got older, it 
kind of became the pool hall and the beer store hanging out in front. <laughs> but yeah, that was sort of the uh, where we hung out. What were your interests growing up? When I was a kid, I guess it was mostly sports and we were outside playing all the time. So from skateboarding and biking and sports and skating, we were at the arena was across the street from where I live. So we were there all the time. Um, and as I got older, I guess it was um, less sports and more interest in music and art and boys and partying and that kind of thing. <laughs> a lot of the common stuff that teenagers go after. Exactly. But w was there anyone that you look looked up to or admired when you were growing up? Anyone that really influenced you heavily? I don't think I had one in particular, I, but I guess I was always attracted to sort of counterculture type of musicians or music and artists and things like that. A real rebellious streak, you'd say? I had a, a little bit of that in me, yeah, for sure. Tell me about your parents, though. Were they a big influence on your life? They were, for sure. I don't, think, I don't know if I realized it uh, when I was younger as much, but uh, look, looking back on it, definitely. Um, they were very, you know, always sort of preaching to us. My, my, I have a brother. Um, you know, you have to get an education. You have to have a job. You have to save money. You have to buy a house. You know, so they were quite always kept honest about it. But in a good way, we had a lot of fun and did a lot of fun stuff together as well. But I think all those things, even though I had a rebellious streak in me, they, those lessons and those sort of things that they were preaching to me, I always listened and followed through on the sort of important things that I needed to do. There were three things you said there that I heard growing up as well about getting property or buying a house, getting an education, and then getting a job. It seemed like the holy trinity. Now, my mom worked in an office, but my father was a laborer. And I felt that that was something that went hand in hand with him being a laborer. One of the things he used to say to me was, I work midnight shifts, so you don't have to. I got to ask, were your parents laborers by any chance? My dad was a postman and my mom was a secretary. So not exactly, but sort of, you know, similar kind of. My dad was an auto body guy too before he became a postman because of the breathing and stuff with the fumes and that. Similar type of thing. It's kind of what drove them towards that. That's what they were looking for for their kids. But tell me about your first job. Oh, God, I had so many jobs when I was young. I, I started working really quite young because I wanted to make money, and I was always sort of uh, ambitious that way. So, but I think one of the first was working in a real estate office as a receptionist, so after school. I worked at Kitty Cobbler selling shoes to kids, so stinky little wet feet, you know, every fall when it got snowed the first time. Eaton's lingerie department. So you're in retail as well. Everyone's yes, got retail yeah. somewhere on their resume. Yeah, tanning salon, but I didn't like tanning, so I was like the one pale person, you know, who looked <laughs> unhealthy at the tanning salon. Um, and then waitressing and things like that. I looked, worked in a lot of restaurants, so from hostess and salad prep girl to being a waitress more, you know, as I got older. I got to ask you about two of your gigs because they kind of foreshadow what would happen with your future. You were working as a receptionist at a real estate agency, and we know in sales – real estate agents. It's one of the more cutthroat businesses for sales. And then you also had a stint at Eaton's in sales as well. And I, I know retail sales is a little bit different. It's not quantified or qualified as heavily mm -hmm. as what media sales is. But did you kind of get the sales bug from that? Did you kind of get the inkling that maybe this is what I wanted to do? Or I don't know, actually. I don't think I, I realized it then. You know, I always liked people and dealing with people and the waitressing thing too. It was uh, sort of you're selling stuff and waitressing as well and selling yourself to get a tip and that. So I guess there was always that in me, but I don't think I realized that's what I wanted to do while I was still in school. I, th I think I thought I was going to, I didn't think I was going to be in sales when I was in school for sure. And in school, specifically university, you went to York and you studied economics. By then, did you think that finance or economics had a future? 
for you? Um, I was thinking more that? business, yeah, than economics. I originally thought I was going to go into science, and I uh, the dissecting of a cat in grade 13 totally turned me off. I can empathize with that. <laughs> I was like grade 11. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a doctor. And then, no, I'm yeah. not going to be a doctor yeah, no. and I have to do that. S- yeah, smelly cat parts for three months uh, in grade 13, uh, which grade 13 doesn't exist anymore. That's how old I am. But I, um, I, Hey, I had it too. Okay. I Phew. know what you're talking about. Phew. But yeah, no, then I was like, oh, I don't know about uh, about this. So I switched to uh, economics because more of the business side of things. And I thought my, I might do my MBA. I wrote my GMAT. I was thinking of it, but then I really sort of wanted to start working and making money. And then I kind of got working and I didn't really want to go back to school. Money changes everything for you. All it takes is one decent paycheck. (laughs) What was your first gig then out of university? I didn't really have to go to university to get it. I don't think I started selling cars. I had gone to Europe right after school because I was working as a waitress and saved up some money. Um, And I lived at home still when I went to university. So I had saved up enough, so I went to uh, Europe for three months with a friend, and I came back, and I had no money, and so I was quite, oh, I have to make money quickly, you know, now, and and get a job quickly, because I have none, and um, I thought I might sell real estate, so I was thinking that for a short term, but then I was like, oh, no, I have to take the course, and that's going to take too long, even though I think it was like six weeks or something at the time. I just saw an ad for a car salesperson. I'm like, oh, I'll do that. My parents like, you know nothing about cars. Like, what are you, like, you can drive. That's about all you know. And I was like, ah, no, you can sell anything, whatever. That's fine. I'm going to go do it. So um, I went and did that for a few years. And there's good money to be made selling cars. And you probably learned a lot too. I, I didn't sell cars, but I washed cars at a dealership years and years ago. And I saw a lot of things that went on and it, it's a pretty tough gig. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of waiting for people, you know, because you're sort of standing around. It can be not busy for hours. Mm, that's for sure. Um, and then you have the the environment where people kind of think or are afraid they're going to get ripped off. So everybody kind of comes at you like you might be ripping them off. And There you, is a stigma and a stereotype that yeah. goes with being a car salesperson, something that you can't shake. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so you had to learn to deal with that and try and gain people's trust and also try and get them to close right away. Like if they leave, they're probably not coming back to you or you'd have to try and instill in them if you spent some time. Like, listen, if you do decide on this car, please come back to me, ask for me, I'm on commission. And you kind of have to be a little bit more aggressive in how you would approach it and kind of appeal to their, you know, senses that you've put time in and that they'd come to you if they were going to buy that car, but you'd really want to try and close it on the spot. So it taught me sort of closing sales, negotiation skills, um, and also just working. It was pretty male dominated. There often weren't women working with me, um, other than maybe the receptionist. So, uh, you really learn to deal with a bunch of men too, because they were mostly older men. I was fairly young. They like you when you're not selling, but if you're beating them, you know, and selling more mm. than they are, they don't really like it. Um, so you had to deal with that too. So it was, I imagine it was it's good. pretty tribal yeah. working there. No one's, sh- yeah. no one's le- sharing any leads or anything like that. Yeah. It's not like yeah. media sales where we share the pie. <laughs> But at 22 years of age, though, you hit one of the milestones that I noticed that your parents set out for you, and that was you bought your first property. You know, I was lucky I lived at home so I could save some money. Obviously, things didn't cost as much back then either. I wanted to ask, though, because you kind of have those three things, that holy trinity that that your parents laid out for you, get an education, get a job, buy a home. Those three things were all ticked off at 22 years old. Did you kind of take a step back and go, okay, what do I do next if I've already done that? It wasn't like I felt like, whoo, I'm, you know, I had a mortgage, I bought a place, but it really wasn't the place I wanted yet. Mm. Or I didn't love working in the automotive car sales business. Like I was doing it 
I in fact hated it. Um, but I was fairly good at it. I think being a woman and being young was an advantage. Um, and, uh, so I was making pretty good money, but it was a bit of the golden handcuffs because I was kind of like, Oh, you know, I looked around, applied for some other jobs, got offered some other jobs working for, you know, bigger brands and in their marketing and different things and their account management. But it was like, Oh, okay. I can now, you know, take a pay cut, make half as much or less than half as much as I'm making. So do I want to do that? So it was hard to get out of because I liked the money and I had then committed to a mortgage and different things, but I really didn't like it. So like so much so that I actually wouldn't even go on vacation or anything because I felt like if I went away and had too much fun, I wouldn't go back. So I was pretty like, just did it and sort of stuck to it, um, for as long as I could. And luckily in a way, the economy started going bad in the late eighties. And so it, I started making less money. And so it was a time where I could kind of make a leap to something else, um, and not take too much of a hit. And that's when you made the jump to media then. So what was your first gig? My first gig was um, at Quebecor, but it was like their trade publications. They don't have them now. I think they either shut them down or sold them or something. Um, And so they were trade publications, and it was an office like up at Dufferin and the 401. So it wasn't even downtown. Well, that's way up there. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't sort of like traditional uh, media The whole Young and Bloor, King and Spadina No, no, it wasn't that at all. And it was B2B, and it was, um, again, a little scrappier um, and probably regular wasn't dealing with media buyers or planners too much. It was really dealing more with, uh, well, one of my publications I worked on was Canadian welder and fabricator, sexy as that may be. Um, it was, uh, you know, very specific audience. Yes, it was. It was a niche. It, and back then there was no real online or anything. So you really had uh, an audience who was really trying to get the clients to spend money on advertising, which they might not be thinking of. Um, versus, uh, and have the time to do, they didn't really have marketing people or that you're dealing with the president or the general manager of the company. But, uh, I think again, sort of being a young woman in that industry kind of helped because it was mostly men and it was like, wow, a girl's entered our office (laughs) when you'd show up. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't know how to react. But from there, you moved to Brunico, and, and Brunico is something that we're all very familiar with. I mean, they just made a major acquisition yeah. by getting Marketing Magazine, taking that off of Roger's hands a couple of months ago. So tell us about your time at Brunico, because you had a number of positions there, and you spent, how, was it 11 and a half, 12 years there? A little over 11 years. Um, yeah, it was uh, a great opportunity. I, I was at Quebec War, which was great. And again, it was more learning about advertising, and but it wasn't really, again, the industry I wanted to be in in that. So when I switched to Brunico, uh, they were more in the marketing and entertainment industry. And at the time they were just in Canada with uh, playback and strategy. So it was, um, not a great economic time then. So it was a little tough and there weren't very many of us, but it was, uh, the owner was very great in that he made sure that everything always was managed properly from a legal, all the, the end stuff was kind of handled, but he wasn't as, um, strong on the sales and marketing front to go out. He had great ideas, but he wasn't really the face of the company. So if you could go out and come up with new ideas and sell, he was, he rewarded you well in terms of, um, new opportunities, um, pay. Um, so I really learned a lot from him. Uh, and he was very good about finding niches in the market that weren't covered. So we really started, you know, the events side of the business, which is really what Brunico is now, mostly events. We went international with a few brands 
And that success in those international markets really even made us more successful back in Canada because if usual you know canadians love to see Mm -hmm. um you doing better somewhere else first then they go oh yeah that is good so we kind of went into areas that um canadians had done very well in in production side on the kids entertainment side and in uh, documentary reality shows production sort of the hgtv type of programming Mm, and that kind of stuff so we started a couple international brands and events and and they were huge and they really took off and um so that, you know, grew the business internationally and into, you know, diversified the revenues from publishing. So as things went more to digital and that, it was a good segue to go more into events and their publishing really became more content marketing for their events. And uh, yeah, no, it was exciting. And then the company grew a lot while I was there. So I kind of went from sales to sort of sales management, publishing, um, you know, so sort of looking after all the editorial content and, and uh advertising and marketing and circulation and events. And so it really, at the end, I was the EVP at the company and I owned a small amount of the company as well. So it was a great, great time, a great experience. Tell us about how you climb that ladder internally. You hear that from a lot of people where they say, oh, we, we can't break through internally for promotion. It always goes to someone externally when there's that posting. I mean, did you go in and say to your your bosses or your supervisors, "This I want to stay at the company, this is where I see myself, or do you just kind of wait back for an opening? How do you approach it? Like, what kind of advice would you give to someone who genuinely loves where they are and they want to climb up the company ladder, how to make that move strategically? There's a few things. I mean, I, I think it's good to be clear what you're hoping for and what you're looking for, but it's also, I think you just have to get in and do it. And I think you have, you know, in in part of that is the right timing if a company's growing and mm-hmm. the situation's there to grow with it, which it, there was when I was at Brunico. So I was fortunate. Um, part of the growth was because I just took it on. I started doing things and I was allowed to, it was a small company. We were entrepreneurial. So before getting a promotion or before I was told I could do something, I'd just run it by, Hey, can I do this? I didn't ask, Oh, can I have a different title? Can I make more money? I just, you know, suggest different things where I thought we could make money and he'd let you try it. And if it worked, um, so he was very good about letting you try things and, and then though rewarding you if, you know, with it as well, but there was the downside if it didn't work as well, of course. Um, if you risk nothing, you risk everything. Yeah. So you'd relate that back to, you'd say a lot of your growth at Brunico came down to a lot of uh, ideas that you had that you ran with. You're really entrepreneurial and proposing different challenges or different things for the business. Yes. I think that was a lot. I think that was the environment there and it was really encouraged. So it was a great environment and I was so used to that. It was, it was very difficult when I moved to bigger environment when I wasn't used to like, we just do whatever was best to grow the business and make money. And when you're not in an environment that is exactly like that, even though most companies say that's what they're about. Mm-hmm. It's when you get into a huge structure and multiple layers and matrixed and whatever, it usually isn't exactly like that. There's more politics. It's just natural comes into it. So, you know, I, I've realized I'm the type of person who is better in an entrepreneurial environment where you can have ideas and try them and, and develop them and, um, a, a bigger environment where there's a lot of red tape to get things through and approvals I find more frustrating, I think, to work within. Great segue into your uh, next gig. You, after Brunico, you, after Brunico, you moved on to uh, CBC, and that that's interesting because you went from trade, print, digital events to the television world, or it was primarily television, and it was digital as well uh, at that time. And you went from B two B to consumer. What made you move on to CBC? I was at Brunico for eleven years, and I kind of had gone 
as far as I could go there really, or I felt, and at the time I also, um, unexpectedly got pregnant. So I wasn't expecting to be expecting. So I, um, was realizing I had traveled so much in my job. I was on the road probably about a, a week out of a month. A lot of our clients were international. We dealt with a lot of trade shows and events that were international. And I knew in having a child, I wouldn't be able to, for a while anyway, be able to travel the same way. And so I really didn't feel like I could do as good a job at Brunico that I had been. But I really didn't want to take a different position or a lesser position either. So I thought it was probably a good time to, you know, see what else was out there and just you know, the grass is always greener and I hadn't been worked at that many places and I was still fairly young. So I was thinking, okay, you know, I should see what else I should do. And, and I didn't at that time realize that I wouldn't necessarily like a large company or that it would work that differently. I had been at Quebec or, but I was so junior and it was so small and we were in a little office. So we sort of operated separately and entrepreneurially even there. Um, and so even I, Quebec or their head office is in Montreal. So you, yeah. you're the satellite office yeah. either way, even if you are at the main office in Toronto. Yeah, exactly. So, and then we weren't even the main office in Toronto. We were like a satellite of the main office in Toronto. So we were really the Toronto like Toronto satellite, satellite yeah. office. <laughs> exactly. And we were such a little blip that nobody cared about us or wondered what we were doing. So we could kind of do what we wanted anyway. So it wasn't, uh, it was still, there was a lot of ownership and involvement in everything. Um, so then when I went to, uh, so when I was looking, I was, you know, not sure. And I thought, well, you know, I need to be something I, I'm good at sales management role. I'm interested. I've, I've, even though I haven't worked in, um, media, uh, or sorry, not media entertainment or broadcasting or that I've been, we've been covering it and publishing and doing digital. And so I understand how it all works, um, fairly well. So I, uh, thought it would be a good, you know, I was looking at many jobs and that's just the one that happened to come through. And, uh, so I went there and it was great. It was a great experience and great learning. And there were a lot of great people at CBC. Uh, I learned a lot. Um, I dealt with, you know, more bigger dollars than I'd ever dealt with. You know, we had the Olympic sponsorships then Mm. and, um, hockey night in Canada. And so, you know, we're doing big sponsorship deals with clients, um, for the Olympics and hockey and football. And so it was great. It was, you know, bigger dollars. I loved the, um, bigger packages and the more custom things we were doing, but I didn't myself as the, the, one of the sales managers, but you know, my team was selling a lot of just, you know, GRP a week, you know, by city too. So that part's very admin heavy, pretty boring. And, you know, my opinion, it's not really what excites me or whatever. So that part of it, you know, I didn't love, it was just a lot of administrative work. Um, but I went through a lot of interesting things there. There was the uh, the um, hockey layout or the hockey. I guess it was. Um, it was the lockout. So the you mean lockout, you mean yeah. movie night in Canada? Yes. When it was shifted yes, to that. Exactly. There was the hockey lockout, but then there was the CBC staff lockout too, where the management, yes. which I was part of, was you know kind of running the show and trafficking ads and doing everything. So there was a lot of interesting things we went through while I was there. Uh, two Olympics I did it, it was there for a summer and winter Olympics. So it was really um, interesting. I learned a lot, met a lot of great people, but it was a, it was a little bit not fast moving enough and it was pretty bureaucratic. A lot of things couldn't be approved. Mm. You'd 
your clients would have a lot of questions for you. You couldn't get back to them with an answer very quickly. They'd get annoyed. You'd be waiting. Well, sports programming, let us do this, integrate General Motors into, you know, whatever. No, I know exactly. And it, so it was You're tough. talking to an ex-CBC as well. Yes. I, I, I faced some of the questions that you have, not at your level, but, but absolutely I know where you're coming from there. But did any of the learnings from the B2B world transfer over to consumer? Like you were able to bring anything from Runico over? Apart from your experience? It was just more experience, uh, how to deal with people, manage people, handle clients. Some of the custom, you know, ideas, I think, you know, being creative and coming up with ideas. I think that can work across really any type of platform or that if if you're that type of person. So I think that kind of stuff. But a lot of it wasn't uh, similar, no. But after that, you moved to Hello Magazine and you worked on the launch of that at Rogers. Tell us a bit about that. Uh, yeah, also very fun. I, I was at CBC. I was kind of realizing, gee, I need to be in a bit more entrepreneurial kind of environment, I think, than uh, CBC. So that it was a good opportunity from startup. So when I started, we weren't publishing yet, and we was getting the whole team and hiring them and really working through how the business plan on how we were going to work with the partners. And it was a licensing deal with um, Spain, who owns uh, the... Hello That's right. Brand. It is a global brand, right? It was yeah. under license. Yeah. So there was the Spanish and the, the British, which most people know from the royalty um, coverage and that. And it, so when we launched in Canada, uh, it was great. There was a lot of uh, integrations and we launched around film festival time and, um, you know, very involved in, in TIFF and events and celebrities coming into town. And so there was a lot of great, exciting things uh, that had, happened with that. But you also had to forecast circulation before there even was any circulation for it. How did that go? Yeah, that was uh, a little tricky. So the business plan was a little flawed, I think. Um, In the end, Hello has been one of their most successful publishing brands, I think. But um, at the beginning, you know, they write off. There wasn't a circulation, a mailed circulation or subscribers. So it was really all newsstand sales. So getting those pockets in retail and um, selling through a new product, a magazine people didn't know or knew of the British but didn't know the Canadian, um, as well as the number of copies and the price and that um, they were pretty – they were hoping for for big results. Like the results they thought they'd sell in a week was more than what, you know, Chatelaine and McLean's were selling in a year on newsstand. So it was pretty aggressive what they had uh, predicted. So very shortly in less than a year, um, they made major cuts, including me, the publisher, the editor, the art director, a number of other people, um, and sort of repositioned it. They cut the price. They, you know, got more newsstands. And, and in the end, it was, it's been very successful. But it was kind of painful making the move there, building the team, starting it off, and then, you know, within less than a year, them pulling sort of the carpet out from under, uh, you know, a few of us. But, hey, it happens. And then I believe it comes down to the fact that you guys you guys did not have Kate Middleton back then. Oh, yes. I that would have that. made us much more successful. I, I, we had I, Charles. You guys yeah. had Charles. No <laughs> Kate Middleton. Because it's funny that we talk about Hello Canada. And Rogers cut pretty much every publication. They either, they either took them off the market for 2017 or reduced them from like weekly to monthly. And Hello was the only one that was untouched. And I got to believe that has to do with Kate Middleton. And then... Prince Harry now having a girlfriend and possibly yes. having a wedding in the next couple of years. Yeah. Funny how those things, those little things turn everything around for a media company. Uh, but you did move on to content publishing and tell us about your time there. Uh, that was a really quick one too. That was, uh, I had just 
got laid off from Hello, and uh, the publisher there, owner, publisher, Jeffrey Daw, was going away traveling for a year. And so uh, they needed someone to fill on an, on Inside E. So I worked with uh, the other owner, Michael King, for a year, and he sort of did the um, FQ and Sir, which were fashion magazines, and I looked after Inside E, but reported into him while, while Jeff was away. So that was a short stint, and it was similar to Hello, only uh, it was distributed within uh, one of the newspapers in the Post. And so, um, so that was a short but similar type of thing, working with you know celebrity entertainment type of content, but then tying it into events and um, and things like that. So it was sort of an extension in a way of hello a little bit. After that, you landed at the Globe and Mail, and it was at an interesting time for not just the advertising industry, but for the entire globe. It was the Great Recession that had just hit. I personally was bumped up to TV rep Beijing Olympics. Money <laughs> was raining from the skies. It was going very well. And then about six weeks after that, the whole world came to a stop. You as a new manager at a new company, how did you cope? How did you keep your team motivated? What sort of things did you do? Because it's kind of like a very challenging situation to come into for a new manager at a new company. To be honest, the Globe was a little bit protected maybe more than other brands they would still they still got luxury brands and luxury business but at the same time we were going through different changes that you know developing sort of packaged goods and the lifestyle section and they were sort of reinvigorating the brand at that time too so i think we had some new things to offer we had new digital and mobile apps and different things to sell so i think we still managed to do okay it was you know things were down but we found new areas to grow and, and were creative about it. Um, we did a lot of custom content programs, um, small business. We really grew. We made a small business hub. Um, we, we just looked for different niches to get money from uh, that maybe hadn't been areas where we had gotten as much. And then I think we just tried to celebrate, you know, the small wins and just keep positive, looking for new ways to, to grow the business and, and to do some creative things and keep the clients happy and come up with new new things that if they had less money to spend, if it was something new and interesting, maybe we could take to them that we could sell them that way. In a way, it's kind of funny because I experienced this too at CBC, that a recession forces big companies to relax for lack of a better term, they're bureaucratic policies. They let people get a little bit more creative. So it's kind of a blessing in disguise. Yeah, Not for true. commissions. For creativity, yeah. it's wonderful. <laughs> but for commissions, it's horrible. <laughs> but after that, you moved over to Post Media. And I want to hear about your time there, but I was wondering if you could give us a bit of a comparison between the two companies. Because if you look at Post Media and the Globe and Mail, they're kind of like Coke and Pepsi. They're both, <laughs> they're both very strong print publications, uh, quality news. They're rooted in print with the big digital extension. Basically, if they were to ask who's each other's competition, they both point to each other. Give us a bit of that comparison there. Yeah, so the Globe and Mail was really selling one brand, a really strong brand. With Post Media, you're really selling multiple brands. Uh, there's the National Post. By the time I got there, the National Post had gone sort of through the heyday and had had you know many cutbacks and stuff. It was still a good publication, but not quite as strong probably as the Globe and Mail. I uh, didn't have as big a footprint, wasn't doing as well. Um, but Post Media overall, with all of its publications and and all the you know the strong the strength they had, especially out west and in different markets, um, was strong overall nationally. So you could offer different things. I was uh, the VP of digital sales on, on the national side. It was sort of the Wild West because you had 10, 
different publishers and you had digital managers and local sales and fighting with national sales. And so it was hard to sort of harness the inventory that we had digitally to really be able to sell big national campaigns because you were competing again and it wasn't very well managed. You know, it was sort of the wild west. They'd gone through a lot of changes and layoffs and, uh, you know, many things. So kind of trying to organize that and bring it together and, and then be able to maximize the revenue was, it was really interesting. Um, you could be creative there, um, because again, it was a big place, but it wasn't as the globe was much more formal and buttoned down. I found that post media is much more entrepreneurial and would try different things and quite quicker to move than the globe and mail less resourced, uh, I think than the globe and mail for sure. And going through a lot more change and, and, uh, financial issues than the Globe and Mail was. That, that, that's got to be difficult for someone. I, I hope you don't mind me asking you this candidly. I mean, what it is, what is it like working at a company where you're hearing about those financial trials in other publications? That's something that I think we take too seriously in the media world because other publications will take, use the opportunity to pick on their competition. I mean, you go back the last year, people have picked on Post Media. Then they picked on Globe when they were doing the voluntary buyouts. Twitter's taken a bit of a kicking in the media. Then it's been Yahoo. I mean, how is it being an employee and sort of being like, oh, God, here's what the competition's saying to us again? Is it easy to lose focus or do you just kind of plow through? I don't think it's the competition, what they're saying so much, because really by the time they're saying that, and there, there might be some, you know, sour grapes kind of thing, like the Globe and National Post maybe have been in competition. We're at one point in big competition, but I don't think really now there's that much competition there. But I don't think it's that. I think really when there is that news out there, it probably is happening. So there's a lot of pressure internally. I mean, I think there's just been so much change in the media industry. I think even more so since I left Post Media was back in, I think, 2012. Since then, even there's even been much more disruption and much more chaos and layoffs and people fearful for their jobs and not knowing, you know, who's going to get cut and what's going to happen. And so I think that working in that environment is stressful for people. And there ends up being a lot more internal focus and worrying about your job and trying to manage internal relationships instead of worrying about your clients and, and doing well. And not meaning that those brands don't worry about their clients and aren't doing well. And I still think they manage to do a good job. I just mean, it does distract people when you know there's going to be layoffs coming up. I mean, the Globe and Mail, they know it ahead of time that there's going to be buyout packages. The union gets notified. They, you know, they get told. There's a whole thing that Yeah, that, so, that they go you through. know, people start knowing about it and thinking about it. And am I going to take a package? Am I not? So all that unrest and, oh, I have to reapply for jobs. I mean, that that takes the focus off of just doing your job and doing it well. Um, it just adds another layer to, you know, that people have to worry about. So, uh, and then just the changeover, like people leaving, people either taking on their work or hiring new people. I mean, there is all turnover that chaos internal. A, turnover yeah. causes a lot of disruption. I mean, yeah. you yourself as a manager, then you have to worry about training this new yeah. person here yeah. because of that. Exactly. Or dealing with less people and how are we going to manage the same clients and give them the same customer service and that they expect and with less people. So, you know, I think it's, um, or the same great content that we've always delivered with less people. So there's, it's not easy. I feel bad for a lot of my friends are in this industry. And so it's been uh, a tough few years, I think, but there's also lots of new and exciting things happening too. So a door closes, a window does yeah. open. You've just got to look yeah, for it. No, exactly. I agree there. But then you moved over to the fifth story and this is your first foray, foray, excuse me, into the agency world. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us how we, how you landed here. 
Um, you kind of cross the aisle, we could say. <laughs> yeah, and and I don't know if we're. I wouldn't really call us an agency because we're sort of like an agency, but we're not exactly either. But um, it is more, I guess, like an agency. Um, what happened was uh, I had to, I was on a contract at Post Media and then got laid off there, and um, I was like, oh my god, the how many more jobs like this can I do in media? It's just getting really frustrating. So much change. I was really sort of, you know, questioning whether I wanted to stay in, in media or what I wanted to do. And I happened to see, um, a posting on LinkedIn for this job, um, for, uh, I think it was EVP of, uh, sales and marketing at, at this company, but it didn't say the name of the company. And I, uh, you know, I kind of looked at it and read it and it was through a headhunter and I was like, oh, I think this might be a company that, um, my boss at Quebec or back when I worked there, Ruth Douglas, I think she owns this and she bought it off of, uh, MDC when she worked for them. And so I was like, I wonder if this is Ruth's company. So I reached out to the headhunter. It sounded very interesting. And I, you know, said, oh, you know, I'm interested this is my background, by the way, is this, you know, Ruth Douglas's company? And he replied back, yes. Oh, Shelly, I've heard of you. Actually, your name's come up and blah, blah, blah. So it ended up being very perfect because I was sort of like, I need a change. And, and really the company for the story was, uh, which is known as News Canada at the time and still is on our sort of PR services and earned media. It had been around for many years. I, I knew what they did. It was in around what we did, but it really wasn't in the media industry. It was more PR, PR services that and measurement that um, News Canada provided. So I, it was like, okay, interesting. And then when I came and, and talked to her and learned more about it, I was like, okay, this is interesting. There's an interesting opportunity here. But I do think as the industry is changing, there's more of a chan- opportunity for us to evolve the company and, and make it more into a content marketing company than sort of earned PR services that we once provided. That's part of still what we provide, but that's not, you know, the only thing we do now. What does Fifth Story define as content marketing? Creating content that is valuable for audiences, for a, for a target audience that will inform them or educate them or entertain them that they might seek out. It will change the way they will engage with a company or seek out that company and lead towards them, either purchasing their services or interacting with that brand, but it's not as direct as advertising. A lot more of the entertainment and information value in it, I find, with with content marketing. Yeah. Where did the name Fifth Story come from? Well, it was very difficult. We were looking to rebrand because the name News Canada really, you know, it works for uh, earned media distribution, but it really did not work for um, us creating content and video and being more of a creative company. And News Canada would sound to me like a competitor to Reuters. Yeah. That's what I would think yeah. of immediately. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people would think we were a media company or a newswire service, or they weren't really sure what. When we were going through the rebranding um, and repositioning of the company, considered many names, and we were having a hard time coming up with a name, you know, how creative do we want to be? How much do we want it to sort of explain what we do. So we kind of liked a creative name, but we were also kind of like, okay, we're storytellers. We kind of figured we were kind of working in the space of sort of five main services. Um, So from, you know, insights and production, distribution, measurement, analytics. So we're kind of like, okay, sort of those five areas of services. We happened to be on the fifth floor of the building that we're in. Um, So it just kind of, it came out, I don't know, fifth story, I think along the lines, you know, fifth estate, you know, 
the, the, those types of things like sort I totally of totally hear you yeah so it was sort of like just a it came out of a bunch of different brainstorming sessions and that was sort of the one we landed on and you've got an impressive roster of clients i could go on forever but uh clients like home depot png rbc and so much more and if people want to see the roster or a sample if they go to fifthstory.com Literally on your homepage, you scroll down and you've got a good sample of some of the work you've done with some of your key clients. Is there an execution, though, that you're particularly proud of? How we're different than a traditional agency that you might think of is a lot of agencies are AORs and they have, you know, really deep relationships and they're working with, the, you know, a handful of clients that, that, that they work with, um, whereas we work with a number of clients some of them on just, you know, sort of more tactical services that we're providing. And then some where we're working with them more on from strategy to, you know, production to distribution to measurement. So some sort of the full gamut. One of the clients that we've been working with over the last year um, is uh, Choice Hotels. Um, we've been doing some really interesting work with them and their agency, their AOR BRAC. They've had not been as much in the, the digital social world and um, wanting to, to do more than that. They'd been doing more traditional marketing, but as a travel um, type client, uh, they really obviously knew they needed to be, a, people are really purchasing and making decisions in the digital social world for, in the travel category in particular, and going online and booking hotels and that. So we worked with them to create um, a program uh, last summer that was uh, a content uh, program there with multiple pieces of content in English and French and it was a video mainly but a lot of then sort of short videos micro videos and photos and cinemagraphs for their social so we created a whole social and digital campaign for them um, that worked really well and did well and we're just working with them more on PR we had started out originally on PR um, but kind of went more into the digital and social working with them. And, and now it's sort of evolving the relationships. But that was a really fun, interesting campaign. There's one campaign you guys did. I saw it on your website and, and I poured over a lot, of, uh, a lot of the work you guys had done before I got here. I really enjoyed, and I encourage anyone listening to this to go to fifthstory.com and look at it, the San Pellegrino campaign. Oh yeah, that was a fun. I, I like the concept of what you guys had, because, and I don't mean this in a dismissive way, but when it comes to carbonated water, there is very little that you can do with it. And I like the fact that San Pellegrino already had something that they were doing in Venice, and you were able to kind of find that Canadian connection with Chef Danny Smiles and then took that whole... I'm a film student, so that whole cinema verte style to that sort of yeah. micro documentary, kind of like where you left the cameras on and you were just a fly on the wall, letting Danny do his thing in that competition where they were supporting the young chefs. And it showed, it, to me, it showed that San Pellegrino was so much more committed to not just giving you fizzy water, but to the culinary arts. And it made, I'll be honest with you, it makes me more likely to ask, not for club soda next time I'm at the restaurant, <laughs> but for a San Pellegrino. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah, that was a fun one as well. That was a few years ago, that, and uh, it, was a, it was a great piece, yeah. If you could go back in time and give your younger self any advice, what would it be? I don't know. It's hard. I, th I think, you know, sometimes I'd, I would probably give myself the advice to not be as direct or as aggressive or straightforward as I sometimes am, but in the same way, I think that is probably what's also gotten to me, gotten me where I've gotten to in my career and pushes me forward. That's the type of person I am. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work with everyone, but I don't know if I could change it exactly. Maybe I would have toned it back a few times along the way, but it is what it is. I hear you. Diplomacy is my new favorite word. <laughs> it's something I've had to employ in the last couple of years in this industry. If you weren't in media, what do you think you'd be doing and why? I already am kind of in the uh, real estate. I have a few apartments that I have, so I probably would 
be more in real estate, I would imagine, and probably whether it would be um, managing properties, buying and managing properties, or you know, renovating and flipping them or what that might be, but that's probably where I'd, I'd be. Shelly, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been fun. That's it for today's show. But for more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching media people podcast. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Vic Genova.